0: All right, let's go. Don't be a dingbat. Okay, that is the title of today's talk here on The Deep Dive. We are in part 21 in our Kings of Compromise study, and we are finally, finally finishing off 1 Kings, as you can see here on the Lagos Cam. There it is, chapter 22 of 1 Kings, and if we scroll just a little further, hello, 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 it's a long chapter, we get to Kings, 2 uh, Kings, and so that's where we are today. I am so glad that you're here. If you are here For the first time, and you feel so obliged, please give that subscribe button a press, the like button, the notification bell. Your smartphone can do something real smart for you and let you know when we present new content to you here on the channel. Tuesday nights, we deal with culture, politics, and news, and we did that last night. Wednesday night, we deal with the Bible. Welcome back in. Let's pray and get started. Father, thank you for the chance to hear your word. And may my words be what you want them to be. May we hear your voice and see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's dive into the Kings of Compromise. Yeah, it's a long chapter. I just realized we got like 53 verses or something like that here. Uh, where are we at? Yeah, 53. Notice the last line in 1 Kings. He served Baal and worshiped him. I mean that's pretty bad right? That's like the end of first kings. If we gro- if we go back to first kings chapter 1, verse 1, it starts with now David was old and advanced in years and it's just kind of real dramatic and sad that you have you have this terrible epitaph on the kingdom of Israel only a couple of hundred years from David's uh, death. That is how quickly a nation can deteriorate. Yeah, I think we're seeing that today. And and the premise of this study has always been, since we started the Kings of Compromise uh, study, is to say, look, what happens uh, now, what's happening now has happened before. This is not news to God. It's not something strange. And so we shouldn't be caught unawares. But what can we learn from those who have been here before so that we can stay strong in the midst of the deterioration. Here's the lesson for tonight. Don't be a dingbat. (laughs) And the basis for that is, and here's the, the real teaching that I'm going to give you, you need to learn how to draw biblical relationship boundaries. Are you hearing me say that you need to draw biblical relationship boundaries around your life? If you're single, particularly if you're single because who you marry is the second most important decision in your life, if you ask me, or if you marry is the second most uh, important decision in your life. You need to draw boundaries around your married life. If you are married, you have to change boundaries. The scripture says you leave mom and dad and you cleave to your spouse, right? You have to draw relationship boundaries for your children and your family. Here's the most important one. If you are a Christian, you have to draw boundaries around people or around your life, not around people, (laughs) you have to draw around your life that you might not be aware are necessary. And that is where we are going here in 1 Kings chapter 22. So take out your Bibles, or don't. You can just trust me to put the right scriptures here up on the screen. That's why we do it through this medium. Uh, And we're going to take a look at, uh, through the text, 1 Kings chapter 22. All right, let's get started uh, through the text Before we get to the verse, uh, verse one of this chapter, I want to go to verse 41 because it's going to introduce us to a character who is on the throne of the southern kingdom. And it's kind of funny because now we're, flipping back over to the southern kingdom for many chapters for about the second half of first kings it's all it's been about all the northern uh, yeah the northern kings of samaria the northern tribes right so you got jeroboam and he's a wicked king and then you have his son baasha nadab and all the way down to ahab and then you get finally to ahab is on the throne in the north and he is uh amoral not amoral he is immoral his wife is leading him into idolatry she's leading the whole nation into idolatry he's chasing it down the lord's prophets he's paying um, bail prophets to prophesy to him and it's just a bad scene it's a totally bad scene the whole nation is struggling for the word of the lord and now we get to chapter 22 and the text is going to flip back to the southern kingdom and introduce us to who to this guy jehoshaphat he's the son of asa remember asa was a righteous king he was a moral king and so he has a son Uh, his name is jehoshaphat and i've got a name for jehoshaphat that we're going to talk about here in this episode, but um, it talks about that he was the son of Asa. This is verse 41. He began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. So he comes to power in the south, four years into Ahab's reign in the north. And Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, daughter of Shilhi. He walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet the places, the high places, those are small little worship shrines, were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Um, Jehoshaphat also, and this is the key key, key verse here, also made peace with the king of Israel. That is going to tell you everything that you need to know about Jehoshaphat. He's got a godly father. He's got a godly life. He's got Godly practices. We're going to take a look at something real quick uh, in, first, in Second Chronicles and look at how the chronicler unpacks Jehoshaphat's reign in Israel. Let me just take you to the Lagos Bible cam here. Uh, Je- Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place again, in Asa's place. He strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in the fortified cities of Judah, uh, Garrison's in the land of Judah. So he's got this strong military presence in the south, the Lord, verse 3, says this, this is 2 Chronicles 17, was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. And then it says, he did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, walked his commandments, and according to the practices, and not according to the practices of Israel. So he is a righteous king in the south. You've got Ahab on the, on the throne in the north. Ahab's doing the exact opposite. Verse 5 of 2 Chronicles chapter 17, therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. He had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took high places and the ashram out of Judah. Uh, Later on, it says um, that in verse 10, I love this line about Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 17. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kings of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Why? Because he's committed to the Lord, but moreover, look what it says. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents of silver and tribute, and the Arabians brought him 7,700 rams uh, and 7,700 goats. So you've got this tremendous inflow of prosperity into the nation. Why? Not only does he honor the Lord and seek the Lord and, you know, destroy the Baals and and the worship of idols. Check just right before that verse that we just read, verse 10, verse 9, what does it says? What does it say? Well, verse 7, let me just say this. Let me go back all the way to there. It says, in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, and he names them, and I'm not going to even try to na- <laughs> pronounce all those names, to teach in the cities of Judah uh, and with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebadiah, Ashael, I didn't say I was going to say the names, but there's a ton of names there, a ton of ancient Hebrew names. Verse 9, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So what is the text teaching us about this Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat is a man that is committed to the word of the Lord. He's committed to seeking the Lord. He's committed to leading others in the knowledge of the Lord. And you would think that a guy like that is just ripping and rocking and he's not stupid and he's not foolish and he's making no mistakes, but you would be wrong. Because when we go back to 1 Kings chapter uh, 22, we find out that he has a couple of things going on. Number one, he has this compromised relationship with Ahab, right? What does it say? Last verse that we just read in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 44, Jehoshaphat had made peace with the king of Israel. Now, why? Why would you as a godly man make peace and treaty with an, a wicked immoral man to the north named Ahab? Because Jehoshaphat gave his son as a, or had his son, Mary, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. It was a marriage alliance. And that's why I said, this, this, is, this talk is going to challenge some people because some of you are not aware of this and you need to be aware of it. But your relationships and your relationship structure is going to be the most important factor in your life when it comes to serving the Lord. If you want to serve the Lord righteously and with integrity, you're going to have to draw some relationship boundaries around your life, particularly if you are, um, if you are, looking for who should you marry, right? Draw that boundary. Let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter, or Second Chronicles chapter 18 um, on the Lagos Cam, and here's what it says. Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. And, and that right there is the problem. He's, he's got this alliance through marriage with a wicked king. There was no relationship boundary. And it's amazing how much damage one bad relationship structure can do to an otherwise successful life. And then as we read this text, we're going to find out another reality about Jehoshaphat, and that is that he is tremendously gullible. And I think the people without relationship boundaries are very gullible by nature. They, they don't see the danger in not drawing relationship boundaries. They don't see the damage that could be done to their lives in that regard, and So, all that to say this, I have determined to call this talk Jehoshaphat the dingbat. 1 Kings chapter 22. He's a godly man, but he's a dingbat. And dingbat does not mean he's an idiot, totally. It just means he's gullible. He's gullible. He's a good king. He's a righteous king. He's restoring Israel back to righteousness, but he's making these stupid decisions. And one gullible decision leads to another. Now, Now, interestingly enough, Jehoshaphat's name means God pleads his cause. And that's an important ta- um, comment to make here in the beginning of the talk, because what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter is as many bad decisions that Jehoshaphat makes because he's gullible, because he doesn't really use discernment, God keeps intervening and keeping him from his own foolishness. And this has become a theme in 1 Kings. And I've I think I've asked this question already, and you can let me know in the chat by putting a little emoji hand up. Raise your hand if you've ever seen God literally save you from your own stupidity. (laughs) And my hand is up. And I I think I asked that exact question like three or four episodes ago. Because this (laughs) this is the sign of a culture that is in decline. Even Christians don't have boundaries. They don't have discernment. And now more than ever, this is why the text is there. Now more than ever, we've got to challenge ourselves to be discerning about who we allow into our lives, who we partner with, who we cooperate with, because it will determine our future. And God, look, God can rescue us and he will rescue the righteous. But do we really want to keep putting, himself, putting ourselves out there to this place of danger? So when we talk about Jehoshaphat, the dingbat, I want to just give you the duck, duck, go search that i discovered on the word dingbat and here's what it is an empty-headed or silly, silly person that is what a dingbat is an empty-headed or silly person you can be a godly person and still silly you can be a godly person and still not discerning of the bad influences around you through relationship structures that you have allowed to connect you even believers can be dingbats and it requires one thing a gullible spirit a gullible spirit and that is so anathema to just Take things on face value to just accept everybody, love everybody. This is the theme of modern Christianity, right? This is the theme of feel-good Christianity. Love everybody, everybody. We don't love, we don't make harm on anybody. We just want to love, 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 love. And so if we're not, if we're gullible and, and loving, and we should love everyone. I'm not saying we should hate anybody. I'm just saying when, when love is not filtered through with discernment, then we become dingbats. <laughs> that is what Jehoshaphat models for us here in first kings chapter 22 so with all that being said let's take a look at verse one and how this all goes down for three years it says this for three years syria and israel continued without war but in the third year jehoshaphat the king of judah came down to the king of israel and the king of israel said to his servants do you not know or sorry do you know that ramoth gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of syria and he said to jehoshaphat will you go with me to battle at ramoth gilead and jehoshaphat said to the king of israel and here's his first stupid move are you ready for this I am as you are. Oh, Jehoshaphat, what on earth are you thinking? He says, uh, <laughs> My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. By the way, horses is meant to instigate us here to remind ourselves of the sin of Solomon to go down to Egypt and get horses. That's a product of Solomon's compromise right there. So Jehoshaphat is just basically yielding his, identif- his identity to Ahab. Why? Because their children are married to each other. Now, What is the impetus behind this discussion? It talks about this city called Ramoth-Gilead. This is a city that was promised to Ahab. If we go two chapters ago, and if you go two uh, deep dives ago, uh, to the 20th chapter of 1 Kings, that was the talk about how God sometimes picks fights for you. Well, Ahab had to have this fight picked so that he would learn how to fight the Lord's battles, and and the fight was with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who... Ahab was supposed to not only fight, but absolutely demolish. He was supposed to wipe him out and devote him to destruction, just like the Israelites were supposed to do with the people of Canaan. Well, Ahab doesn't do that. He spares Ben-Hadad. And the reason why is because he's under this foolish, (laughs) another gullible assumption that he and Ben-Hadad, even though they're arch enemies spiritually, they can get along physically. And really what it's about is Ahab wants to expand his kingdom and be popular and be liked. And there's no more corruptive influence on your spiritual development than wanting to be liked. I mean, it really will destroy your spirit. It will destroy your testimony. So he doesn't kill Ben-Hadad, Ahab. He aligns with him. He saves him, rescues him. Even though the Lord gave him victory, Ahab basically scour- scorns the Lord's victory and, and spares Ben-Hadad's life. And, and Ben-Hadad says, well, because you spared my life, I'm going to give you Ramoth Gilead and I'm going to give you three other cities. And it's going to it's going to be a great partnership between me and you. Well, three years go by with no war between Israel and Syria. And guess what? Ben-Hadad is Ben-Hadad. Pagans be pagans. Liars be liars, right? And so he doesn't give him the land back. And it's three years in, and, and Ahab suddenly wakes up and says, whoa, wait a second. Oh, goodness. You know what? I remember. We're supposed to have Ramoth Gilead, but, but I guess I guess we don't have that. And I guess, you know, he, he reneged on our, on our deal. <laughs> and this is the problem with trusting those who are not believers, Okay. We can generate a lot of good from non-believers. The world can and, and non-believers can share a lot of good culturally uh, in, in development. Um, you know, pagans have built roads and skyscrapers and technological advancements. There's nothing wrong about that. But when we talk about aligning with them, associating with them as friends, as as a, as partners in life, that is where the the um, deterioration of our spiritual. Life or the, uh, the the ebbing away of our spiritual development starts to happen, and that is what Ahab exhibits when in in his relationship to Ben Hadad. And guess what? <laughs> it is what Jehoshaphat exhibits in his relationship to Ahab. So as Ben Hadad, a pagan, leads uh, Ahab a I would call him or equate him to a carnal Christian, as Ben Hadad, a pagan, has influence on Ahab, a carnal Christian. So carnal Christians can have terrible influence upon devoted Christians such as Jehoshaphat. So I hope that's clear, we've got the pictures now of the three main characters here. You got Jehoshaphat, I would call him a committed Christian. You have Ahab, a carnal Christian, maybe not even a Christian at all. And then you have Ben-Hadad, this king of Syria, who is uh, you know, a liar, a thief, a swindler, a pagan. And bad company corrupts good character. You, you put a rotten apple into one batch of apples and all the other ba- apples become rotten. You put one good apple in a batch of rotten apples and the good apple becomes rotten. Deterioration is a one way street. And if you hang with deteriorated, spiritually deteriorated people, you will become spiritually deteriorated. And that is what we see in Jehoshaphat. And he is tremendously, tremendously gullible and susceptible to the lies and the influence of those around him. So let's continue in the text. Verse five, it says this. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the Lord, uh, for the word of the Lord. Now that's important because he's saying, look, I, I'm with you. My horse is with you. My men are with you. Let's fight together. But wait, I like to seek God's will on, on things. And this is good. Jehoshaphat is a committed Christian, I would call him. You know, I know he's Jewish. I know it's, let's just make the corollary to our day. He's a committed Christian. I want to know what God says about this. And so the king of Israel says this, gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. Don't miss that. This is 400. He's got 400 prophets. And we're going to find out that these are 400 prophets who are bought and paid for by King Ahab. And he said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, because they are on the dole. Okay. What do they say? Go up. Go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And if you will notice in the text, Lord here is not capitalized okay this is important because it is a generic term for the lord it is not the name yahweh the name that was not supposed to be pronounced whenever you see lord with the um, lowercase o r d lowercase O R that is a different kind of name for god and um uh, i'm sorry on my on my presentation software here you'll also see it says lord down here in verse Eight, okay but that actually is capital o-r-d which is the covenantal name yahweh just want to make that clear you don't see it on this text but if we hop over to the uh biblical text on the logos bible cam you will see um, that the false prophets in verse six say go up for the lord see l-o-r-d lower cap lowercase o-r-d will give it to the king those are the false prophets speaking but jehoshaphat verse eight, seven said is there not a prophet of the lord look at that do you see it L-O-R-D, all capitalized, that is because that is the covenantal name Yahweh, the Lord. So not just this idea of God as we want him, but the very fixed, firm, central to everything Lord of lords and king of kings, Yahweh, is what this king, Jehoshaphat, is looking for. So he says, is there a prophet of the Lord, like the Lord, like God, Jesus, right, (laughs) of whom we may acquire? Okay, back to my presentation software, if you don't mind. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Again, that is capital. Lord Micaiah the son of Imlah but I hate him <laughs> this is so funny for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil and Jehoshaphat said let not the king say so now <laughs> Jehoshaphat should have said well wait a second well why is that the case and really what he should have done is like he should have said well no no kidding Ahab you're a wicked man you, you have serious character holes. you are leading God's people but you're leading them astray from the Lord but he's gullible and he's susceptible to the influences of Ahab. And this is this is what dingbats do. They don't use discernment. So Josh, let God let's let's hear from God first. And Ahab's like, well, there's one guy, I know he's got the mind of the Lord, but I don't like what he says. And Josh's like, well, maybe he has something good to say this time. And again, it's just not a not a good uh uh picture of Jehoshaphat right here. So verse nine, then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now, now look what he has to do to get a hold of this prophet. He summons an officer. What does that intend? What does that imply? It implies this, Micaiah is in jail. <laughs> he's in prison. Why? Because he's speaking the truth. The truth speakers in almost every generation of, of cultural decay are vilified, hated, and imprisoned. OK, and, and, and there's more coming to that and we'll get to it. But it says that they summon him and they say, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Now, this is important because it's building the scene, is building attention for what Micaiah is about to face. The one prophet of the Lord is going to come into the presence of 400 other prophets, stand before two heads of state, in this like grand kind of grandiose, if you will, presentation setting. And he's going to be challenged to speak in line with the false prophets of the Lord Adonai, the lowercase lords that they follow their own pursuit. They're following their own hearts, right? This is exactly the pressure that Micaiah is going to face. It says, and Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made for himself horns and said, Thus says the Lord: With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, "Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king." All of this is pomp and ceremony. All of this is just ceremony. It is, it is just presentation. He, he's he's dramatic. He's got a prop and he holds horns and he's you know yeah rah 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 King Ahab you're gonna. You're going to kick his butt. You're going to triumph over the Syrians. Go for it. And so Micaiah, and this is all meant to draw into us the the drama, draw us into the drama of the moment where Micaiah has to choose, go with the flow or stand for God. And thank God he stands for God. But here's what it says in verse 13. And the messengers who went to summon Micaiah said to him, now even more pressure is going to be put on Micaiah. It says, Behold, the words of the prophets are with one accord and favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. Okay, and and then verse 15. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said i saw all israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that had no shepherd and the lord said these have no master let each return to his home in peace okay that's a lot of text let me break it down for you a couple interesting pictures again you got the showy presentation of the two kings sitting in their royal robes, surrounded by 400 prophets, and they're all saying the same exact thing. Go, you're going to win. God is with you. Here's some horns. And, uh, and they're doing this whole big presentation. And they're even telling Micaiah, they just get him out of prison. Imagine this. You're in prison for preaching the word of the Lord. They get you out of prison. They bring it before heads of state who have, who can determine your future, who can get you out of prison with, with, a, with one command. And the pressure is on from a fellow prophet. Well, a false prophet, but a prophet who identifies as a prophet—a I man who identifies as a prophet—and he says, "You got to say what we're saying. You know, speak favor. Don't be stupid. Like you tell him what he needs to hear, what he wants to hear." And Micaiah is like, "Okay, fine." <laughs> I mean, Micaiah says, "I'm only going to speak what the Lord says." And then he gets to the place, and he kind of flippantly and sarcastically says, "Yeah, go up. You want you want me to just fall in line with your false prophet? Sure, go ahead, go fight." And Ahab's response is amazing because it says, what does he say in verse 16? How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Again, and the Lord here is capitalized. You know what Ahab symbolizes? That carnal Christian who knows what God wants and just refuses to listen. How many people are like that in the church today? They know what God would say and they just don't listen. And they spiritualize not listening all the time. Here's how they spiritualize it. And you have heard this. You may have even said this. They say, well, I prayed about it. And, you know, the Lord, I'm not ready right now. Or, or I'm, I'm praying through that. Like they know they should move out of the relationship with the pagan. Well, I'm praying about it. Or they know they should stop living together. They know they should stop sleeping around. They know they should stop drinking too much. They know they should stop, you know, hoarding their, their money and, and, or they know they should tithe and they're not doing it. And they always spiritualize, well, you know, I'm just, you know, praying through and trusting the Lord and waiting for the word. And, and really, the thing is, is that they know what they should do. And they don't want to do it, and so they will spiritualize it every which way uh, from Sunday, and and just refuse. And here, Ahab knows this is what carnal Christians are all about. They are surrounded by the people telling them what they want, but they know what they're being told is just baloney. And there is a true word of the Lord. They just don't want to submit to it. Be careful of these people. They're everywhere. They are they are um, blind guides. What Jesus talks about in, in Matthew's gospel. They, they have the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And they're everywhere today. They're all over the place in the modern church, in the liturgical church, in the high church, and maybe in your church. Somebody who knows God's word, but just doesn't want to hear it. And it's funny because Ahab is even willing to admit, I know you're going to prophesy doom, so just get it over with. And what does, what does Micaiah say? He says, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains, verse 17, scattered on the mountains like sheep as a sh- as sh- uh, As sheep that have no shepherd, and the Lord said, these have no master that each should return to his home in peace. Now, the king of Israel is a picture of the shepherd, right? The shepherd is the king. He is guiding God's people. And so having no shepherd means Ahab, you go to this battle, you're dead. You're dead. That's what's going to happen to you. And how does uh, Ahab respond? Because the point here that Micaiah makes is you're going to die and the people are going to be left as sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is sitting duck, is a sitting duck for the wolves. They will they are basically dead as well. So upon hearing the news that the people will suffer because he will be dead if he goes to battle from Ramoth Gilead, how does Ahab respond? And this is perhaps the most telling picture of a carnal Christian. Verse 18 And the king of Israel said to Jehosh- Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would prophesy, that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? <laughs> this is hilarious. Again, you got to read the Bible with a little bit of a lightheartedness because there is a lot of humor in this text because of how outrageous the characters are. Ahab is completely bonkers. He's completely sold out to Jezebel, to paganism. And though he repented in the last chapter, and God said, I'm not going to kill you because you've repented and you've humbled yourself and you've sought me. He's right back to his old ways. And he's <laughs> his only concern is, Upon hearing that he's going to die and the the people will suffer because they won't have a king, his only concern is that Micaiah is mean. (laughs) That's literally what he says. Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? You know, it begs the question about people who get offended by what the pastor says in church. Is it really what the pastor said or is it your heart? Hello. Is it what you have a problem hearing? I think more often that's the case. Rather than what the pastor's saying. Oh, the pastor talked about that. I'm offended. Well, maybe you should be offended. Maybe you should be challenged in that area of your life because it's killing you or it's affecting you in a negative way. And don't be an Ahab who says, I knew if I went to church, I'd hear something that I didn't want to hear. I knew if I read the Bible, God would speak to me about something I don't want. Didn't I tell you? Well, friends, God warns and disciplines those that He loves. If you're hearing God speak to you in a way that you don't want to hear, it's a sign that he loves you and He cares about you and he sees you on a destructive path and he wants to save you from it. It's not that he's out to get you. He's out to to save you. And sometimes we need to hear things that are negative or or, or will destroy ourselves. So verse 19, Micaiah is not done. Look what it says. And he says, verse 19, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. What a picture here of the throne of the Lord. It is very similar to that of. Job chapter one and chapter two, and it is very reminiscent of how God um, instigates David to take a census of the people, and then brings judgment upon David for census for taking the census of the people. And really, what this text is addressing is the issue of theodicy. For those of you who don't know what that means, theodicy is the is the exploration of uh, what, where does evil come from, and how can a good God allow evil, and how what, how do we handle that as believers? Because God is holy good. And he is, he is not the author of evil, but he does leverage evil. He does allow evil. And so how do we reconcile those things? If everything we know is created by God, but then there are evil things that happen. And so here we have a picture of it. You have the, um, the, the host of heaven on his right. Yeah. And on his left. So you have like kind of good angels and bad angels standing before the Lord. And he says, okay, who's going to entice Ahab? Who's going to mess with this guy so that he will make a fatal mistake? And the Lord has done this. The Lord is instigating this, okay? He's not the, again, not the author of evil, not the, lie, not the author of lies, not the author of calamity, but he will use it and he will send it. He will send it for judgment and for purposes that are larger than what we can perceive in our limited perspective. A couple, of, couple of scriptures about this and some points. First, when it comes to evil and evil people, Psalm 118, 25, look at this verse. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. He's talking about God there. Notice what it's dealing with here. It is teaching us that God deals with people as they are. He will show himself uh, merciful to the merciful. He will show himself blameless to the blameless. He will show himself pure to the pure, but to the crooked, God can show himself torturous. So first, first point about the Odyssey is that God deals with people based on their character. He is not going to um, show the same, the same side of his personality to, we always have to go here because he's the archetype of evil people to Adolf Hitler, <laughs> as he would to you as he would to the average person, right? He's going to show himself a different side of himself to different kinds of people. He's not, and he's not going to placate. He's not going to be the forlorn, scorned lover to evil, wicked people. If they're evil, wicked people, he will, he will deal with them accordingly, which is why Jesus, on many occasions, with the leaders and the rulers who were hypocrites, is the firmest and the most cutting to them on a regular basis. God deals with us as we are. Another text comes from Isaiah 45, verse 7. And this text is a little bit more difficult to hear. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God uses evil. He does. He doesn't doesn't create it. I know create darkness is a symbol. symbol, Darkness is a symbol. Calamity is a symbol. Um, They are the fruits of evil, but God is not the author of evil. But he will use it. He will leverage it, even in Job's own life which actually is a picture pointed to Christ. Job suffers the evil of Satan that God allows so that Job can prove in his life of suffering innocently what his son Jesus will look like when he suffers innocently under the direct assignment of God the Father. When Peter preaches in book, the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, and he stands before the people of his day and he gives that sermon, uh, it says... Let's go there on the Logos Bible Cam. Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs and wonders God did through him amongst you in your midst. He was delivered this Jesus, to, according to the def- definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Uh, and then it says this. In where is it here? Where is it here? Where is it? Okay, okay, hold on a second. This Jesus delivered up according to the... Yeah, I already read it. Sorry, verse 23. Let me get back there. This Jesus delivered up... Okay, by who? By wicked and lawless men, killed and crucified by the hands of wicked and lawless men. But what does it say in verse 23? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So even when we see evil in our world and it doesn't make sense to us, It's a reminder that God is going to always use it for his ultimate purposes. Jesus is crucified to our salvation. He is crucified at the hands of evil men, but it was all ordained by God to happen. Even Judas, even Judas was instigated by Satan. Satan is under the dominion of God. Satan does not instigate uh, Judas if God does not allow Satan to instigate Judas. And yet all those things, all those evil things that are happening to put Christ on the cross, is God, going to, God is going to use to bring about salvation for you and for me. Um, another passage of scripture to deal with the theodicy issue is Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? In other words, evil is going to come and God is going to allow it and he's going to allow it for his purposes. Now, this is the good news for you. Going through, if you ever go through something, you don't understand God's purposes in it. Understand this. You may not understand it in the moment, just like Job didn't. Okay, just like Jesus' disciples and apostles did not know. But ultimately, God is going to use the evil and all the situational calamity that you might experience in your life to produce good ultimately through your life. That is the theme and the heart of the gospel. It is the reality of those who are born again of the Holy Spirit. It is the reality of those who follow Christ because he was put to death according to the the divine foreknowledge of God, the definite foreknowledge of God. He was put to death by the hands of wicked men. And yet God used their wickedness to accomplish our salvation. That is how he works. And it is how He always works. And he will be working like that until the end of this age. Moving on in the text, verse 24. Then Zedekiah, son of Chenaniah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see it on the day when you go out into the inner chamber and hide yourself. In other words, it's coming, pal, and they're coming for you. If your king is dead, they're coming for you because you are on his, you are in his payroll. Verse 26, and the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return a peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, here are you peoples. So Micaiah is kind of like being dragged off to prison. And he's kind of like just shouting one, one last thing. I've spoken the word of the Lord. It is the, the definite purpose of the Lord. It's going to happen. This is going down. You can't stop it. And yet, what does he experience? He, he experiences violence. He experiences ostracism, ostracism, <laughs> He is ostracized. There we go. <laughs> He is vilified, he is marginalized, he is mocked and ridiculed, and he suffers. And this is a picture of the people who stand for truth in their generation. This is how it works, friend. I mean, I wish it wasn't like this, but in a world that is dominated by Satan and lies, those who speak the truth will be vilified. That is how it happens. And oftentimes in scripture, remember, Micaiah is one of 401 prophets. He's the only one. There's 400 on this side and Micaiah is standing alone. And sometimes in life as Christians, it will feel like you are the one person in the business, one person in the family, one person in the community. And you're the only one standing up for God. And everybody over here hates you and vilifies you. And you're going to learn very quickly as a Christian that usually, and we see this in scripture, all throughout scripture, usually it is the minority that is in the will of God. This is a profound truth I hope you get it because it will help you draw biblical boundaries in your life we're going to get the points at the end we're going to go through this text verse by verse to understand how we get there verse 29 so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah went up to Ramoth Gilead and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat now let's pause here Micaiah has just said Ahab you're going to go to battle you're going to die and the people of Israel will be like a like sheep without a shepherd so he ignores Makai. He imprisons him. And then he tells Jehoshaphat, let's go to battle. Let's do it. Let's do this thing. Come here. We got 400 prophets on our side. Come on, let's do it. And he says to Jehoshaphat, this is, this is the funniest point in, one of the funniest points in all the Bible. He says, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now, this is why I call Jehoshaphat a dingbat. Because honest to goodness, Jehoshaphat, you have just heard from the prophet that you asked for that Ahab is going down. He is going to be killed. And that same person who has just prophesied by the word of the Lord that he will die, that same person has just told you, I'm going into battle. I'm going to disguise myself. And you wear your royal robes. If you cannot see what is happening to you, Jehoshaphat, you are a total dingbat. That is why this text is here. Because it's teaching us how gullible we can be, even as Christians, we can be so stinking gullible to our own detriment. Now, verse 31, God steps in, and this is how it goes down. Now, the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of the chariots, fight neither small or great, but only the king of Israel. There's one person on his mind to kill, and that's Ahab. Verse 32, and when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So the ruse works for Ahab. At first they think, oh, Jehoshaphat, there's Ahab. They see Jehoshaphat in royal robes, there's Ahab. So they're going to go after Ahab and they're going to kill him. But look what it says this, what it says next. So they turned to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Uh, Moving on. But a certain man, verse 34, drew his bow at random. And this is, it's in the text at random, but it's meant to imply that this is not random at all. Because what happens? Who does he strike? He strikes out of all people, the king of Israel, between the scale armor and the breastplate. I mean, this is an expert sniper range shot. And it just lands on the exact person that God's word prophesied would die in battle. So Ahab gets the arrow through his breastplate and armor. Therefore, he said, this is Ahab saying to his driver of the chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded and the battle continued that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Until the evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the prophecy comes true. Ahab is dead. Verse 37, the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it. According to the word of the Lord that he has spoken. Now this is just a picture of disgusting culture, right? This is a picture of a disgraced, deteriorated culture. Because you have prostitutes literally bathing themselves in the blood of the king. Ugh, that's how bad nations can get. And, and, you, and we're seeing it in our country. But we're seeing it in the major cities of our country. We're seeing it in the very, you know, the very dark areas of our world right now. Uh, we talked about it last night on the deep, deep end uh, when you have a woman going to fight for women's rights in sports. And she is the one that is assaulted by a man dressed as a woman and then hated, vilified, locked into a room for three hours held at ransom and then i don't know if you saw this but the san francisco state university put out a instagram post saying that she brought violence into the campus (laughs) she literally was attacked and the san francisco state university administrator said that she is responsible for the violence it is it is isaiah 5 culture you know woe to them who Uh, make what is good evil and what is evil good. You know, this is our culture. This is a deteriorating culture. What we are seeing now, we have seen before. It is nothing new to the narrative of scripture, but there is something that we can do as Christians and that is draw boundaries. Okay, verse 39, let's continue. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab, this is his epitaph, and all they did... And the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And we're going to see Ahaziah in just a moment about how bad he is. We're skipping ahead because we already read verses 41 to 44. Let's go to 45. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. Now listen to this. This is homosexuality, male cult prostitutes. This is homosexuality, rampant in a culture. A deteriorating culture promotes and endorses and celebrates homosexuality. It actually even deifies homosexuality. And that is our culture. And, and so Jehoshaphat is like, no, we're getting rid of that. That is a godly man. We're getting rid of the male cult prostitutes, okay? Uh, verse 47, there was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go for, they were, for the ships were wrecked at Easy and Geber. Um, now this is another picture that the scripture gives us of uh A, of Jehoshaphat. He loves money, he wants to get more money, he wants to get into the gold business, the gold trade. So he builds ships, and this is again against the word of the Lord to go and make trade, to make yourself rich, and to acquire great wealth. This is against the word of the Lord, Deuteronomy 17, the rule for Israel's kings. And, and Jehoshaphat, again, is not a perfect king, right? All, by the way, all these kings are not perfect because they need, they're, they're, they're intended to show us that we need a perfect king, and the perfect king is Christ. The perfect, God, sinless, God-man king is Jesus Christ. But he, anyway, Jehoshaphat, you know, he makes these ships. He, he, set, he, he intends to make himself rich, but he, they, the ships don't even leave harbor. They're, they're wrecked, and uh, uh, Chronicles says that they're wrecked by the, by the Lord. Then Ahaziah... The son of Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. The last three verses of the chapter. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked, the Lord, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. This is the guy. Now, if we just back up one verse, this is the guy who said... To Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with you in the ships that you made to go get gold, and Jehoshaphat's like, Jehoshaphat's like, no. And I think two things happen here. I think that Jehoshaphat says no, and then the Lord ruined and destroyed the um, the ships because here's what it says in the Second Chronicles account. Now, now you got to remember this about the narrative of Israel's kings. There's two accounts in the Bible of, of Israel's kings. There's First and Second Kings, which is the the declination into. Uh, Babylonian captivity. And then there's 1 and 2 Chronicles, which is the ascension out of captivity and back into Second Temple Judaism in Jerusalem. And so 1 and 2 Kings really emphasize the sins that led them into debauchery. And 1 and 2 Chronicles emphasize the righteousness that led them out and back into the land. That's how you're supposed to read those two different accounts. Those parallel, if you would, uh, accounts of Israel's history here. But here's how it reads in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says, after the Jehoshaphat king of Judah joined with Ahaziah king of Israel who acted wickedly he joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish and they built the ships in Izion geber then Eleazar the son of Dodavahu of Marishah prophesied against Jehoshaphat saying because you have joined with Ahaziah the Lord will destroy what you have made and the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. Now I already misspoke and I forgot what I was going to intend to say here based on the text but it was not that um, uh, he denied Ahaziah and then the Lord wrecked the ships it's that the he joined with Ahaziah the Lord wrecked his ships and he said no and the point being is that God <laughs> clearly and repeatedly steps in to save Jehoshaphat from his own dingbat ways and good news dingbats <laughs> God will do that for you <laughs> I wonder if I'm talking to anybody out there, they're like, man, I sound like Jehoshaphat. That's that fat that, that guy. I, I can resonate with that, because I believe a lot of people that I shouldn't believe. And I I hook up with a lot of people that I should not hook up with. And I'm not talking about sexually, I'm talking about just relationally. Uh, and I and I hang out with some people that really constantly get me into the same kind of trouble that I should not be in, and I hate when I do that. Well, you're a dingbat. That's the fact. <laughs> let me be loving enough to tell you that you're a dingbat. You're just like Jahoshfat. And here's what God is doing. He's not letting you get away with it. He's not going to let you run. Because you are his, and he loves you, and he protects his own, and he preserves his own. And if he doesn't preserve his own, his own have no chance. So with all that being said, let's talk about the truths that we can tap into here in the last chapter of 1 Kings. Have I said this enough? Don't be a dingbat. A dingbat is gullible. They love the Lord, but here's what else they love. They love attention. A dingbat, okay? I'm going to put this up on the screen so that I'm sure that you're going to get it. They love attention and they love people being around them and it doesn't matter who it is who's around them as long as they have people around them. That is a definition of a dingbat. And if that is you, you need discernment. Um, Here's the second point. Be believing but not gullible. So you believe the Lord. And I think sometimes, and let me know in the chat, if you agree with this, if you feel this, but I think that sometimes Christians can be gullible because they think believing is the most important thing to do. And so they will believe anything. You know what I mean? And I'm not talking about all Christians. I don't want to lump everybody in this same category, but because we make such a big deal about faith. And believing in the impossible or even maybe the irrational, that maybe we are more susceptible to gullibility and we will believe anything. And let me assure you as clearly as I can that that is not Christian faith. No. Christian faith is historically testified to. There was a man named Jesus who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who was Crucified in the first century, history revolves around him, BC AD, uh, 2.8 billion people in the earth worship Jesus Christ. Uh, there, is a, um, there is a historical testimony to the good that Christianity has produced in the world. The good, the hospitals built, the orphanages built, the, 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 the care for the poor, the, the redefinition of who we should care for. In ancient Greek and ancient Roman culture, poor people were despised. Uh, The value of human life is a fruit of Christian faith. So you have this historical testimony to the the reliability of Christianity being the truth, being rooted in the truth. It is not a gullible faith, and it must not be a faith that is just flippant and, and believing in anything. This is t- entirely biblical. Let me give you a passage of scripture from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, this is important, don't miss that word. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. There is always going to be a plethora of false prophecies. There's always going to be a plethora of people that you should not listen to as a believer. And they're going to be in the church. And they're going to have the name Christian uh I was I was watching with my wife on Netflix I think like every three years Netflix comes out with a David Koresh documentary or a mockumentary or not mockumentary um what do you call it like a uh, dramatized documentary if you will every three years or another example is Jim Jones uh the guy who led the you know the San Francisco church that he that he built in San Francisco he Had all these people uproot their lives and moved to the jungles of Guyana and and found a Jonestown, this socialist, communist, Christian utopia, and then had them all drink Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide and they all committed mass suicide. And then he didn't even have the guts to drink the the cyanide himself. He shot himself with a gun through the head. How does that happen? It happens because Christians don't realize that there is a necessity for discernment in their life. You cannot just receive everything. You have to measure it. You have to test it. Well, what do we test it against? We test it against the word of God. We test it against the leadership of our church. This is why you have to have leaders, elders, who you submit to. And you take what you've heard and you ask questions and you you verify this on the basis of two or three witnesses, right? Um, Why does scripture uh, give you, why does scripture uh, prescribe elders for the church? So that they might protect you and keep watch over you. Hebrews chapter 13. They're keeping watch over you. Listen to them so that their work is not a burden. And so you've got to have a discernment that also comes from the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit should give you the ability to sniff out falsehood. And, and uh, you know, the great um, illustration that a lot of preachers use is that counterfeiters, those who study counterfeit, uh, currency. I always, I've heard this a thousand times. You have to, I'm sure. They study the original and the authentic, so that they can immediately spot the counterfeit. They don't study counterfeits; they study the the authentic. And in your life as a Christian, you've got to spend a heck of a lot more time studying the authentic than exploring the the counterfeit. Like you know, um, Jehovah's Witness. Some of you want to go deep diving into. Well, what do they believe? What is it all that about? What? They... No, no, no. Study the scriptures open the Bible, get rooted in Christ so that when they come to your door, you already know the answers. You already are convinced of what you believe. Uh, Mormons or you know, any other you know, 18th century uh, rooted uh, cult of this country. So, so that you're not taken captive by hollow deception. And where do we get that idea? We get that from Ephesians chapter four, where it says, uh, where does it say here? In verse nine, and I'm going to just do something real quickly before we get there. Let me just do this so that we can go. Uh, I want to put this on the screen and you're not going to see all my notes so that it's clear. Okay. Verse nine of Ephesians chapter four. He ascended. What does it mean? He also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. What was Israel going to miss because Ahab was a fool and Jehoshaphat was a dingbat? (laughs) They were going to lose a shepherd. Well, shepherds are people who guide guide God's people, direct God's people, and protect God's people. And they are given by Jesus Christ, the ascended Christ, and they are given to do what? To equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. Okay, the work of ministry is the work of ministry, serving others is the body of Christ's responsibility, not just the pastor's responsibility for the building up the body of Christ until we all, what, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, God gives you shepherds so that you're not gullible, so that you're not a dingbat. And that is the ultimate point of this chapter. A uh, second truth that I want to open up to you here from this chapter is this. The majority is often wrong. And this is a biblical fact. This is a precedent throughout the old and new Testament. What does the scriptures talk about when it comes to the people of Israel going into the land of Egypt? Well, they send 12 spies, 12 spies go and examine the land. 10 of them come back and say, we can't do it. And the minority who is right, Joshua and Caleb say we can't. And, the, and then it, the, the, the negativity spreads quickly throughout the whole congregation of israel numbers chapter 14 that all the congregation all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of israel grumbled against moses and they said oh we wish that we had died in israel i mean in egypt would that we had died in the wilderness why is the lord doing this to us and well let's go just go back to egypt and this is the thing that you've got to realize about that moment that i don't think sometimes we understand everyone was saying it except two guys every single person so you're sitting in israel and you're you're tense next to joe schmo over here and joe schmo's like hey i heard that story about the 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 the, the 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 spies going into the land i don't want any part of that man i don't want to die at the hand of some stupid giant i'd rather be out here now how are you going to respond when you're surrounded on the right and on the left with these people who are gullible and they're believing the majority well why do i bring this up because that's where we are as a country that's where we are as a culture Becoming a Christian, uh, being a Christian right now costs you way more than it ever did in America before. You've got to believe in spite of what everybody around you is saying. You've got to trust that scripture is the final authority over your life instead of the opinions of man. And even science, this this applies to science. And this is why I bring up these kind of things all the time, because science. Produces medicine and pharmaceutical products and all these things that Christians often turn to to find hope to find solace to find peace when really they need to find peace in the Lord. And I give you the example of Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is a science guy. This is a guy who makes all the rounds. He's very well-spoken. He's very well-known, very popular, atheist, you know, kind of science guy, everything like this. Recently on an interview, he said the following, I'm not interested in medical pedigree. I'm interested in medical consensus and scientific consensus. The individual scientist does not matter. In other words, I agree when the majority speaks. (laughs) That's literally what he said. And this guy is like a hero of the secular, progressive, atheist culture. Isn't it kind of amazing? Like the, 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 those people used to be on the outside looking in. They used to be like the rebels. And now the rebels have become the establishment. And now the establishment is like, yeah, that's right. You got to go with the establishment. The very people who would have said we got to rail against the machine, rage against the machine. There was even a band called that. Rage against the machine is now the machine. And <laughs> that's where we are as a culture. And for anybody who would like to say, in Neil deGrasse, to Neil deGrasse's own speech here, that individual scientist does not matter. I go with the consensus. Um, yeah, Galileo called. He has a. He'd like to have a word for you, <laughs> word with you. Uh, this is from Galileo's own Wikipedia page. at the At the time of Galileo's conflict with the Church, the majority of educated people subscribed to the Aristotelian uh, geocentric view that the Earth is the center of the universe and the orbit of all heavenly bodies. And that, by God's grace, is still on Wikipedia, even though Wikipedia is corrupted as well. Like Galileo, Copernicus, these heliocentric philosophers and astronomers and scientists who said no the earth is not the center the sun is the center of the solar system (laughs) they were the minority the point being what the majority is often wrong paul says this in second timothy 4 at my first defense verse 16 no one came to stand with me but all deserted me what was he saying i was in the minority when i stood trial on my first defense nobody stood with me i was all alone that is what it takes to be a christian you have to learn how to stand alone. You have to learn to not seek to be liked, to have the attention, to have people pay attention to you, to have everybody point to you and look at you and think you're wonderful. You have to learn to appreciate those moments. But And, and Paul, he's okay with it. He's like, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's death, den, uh, mouth. That is number three. Uh, so we've talked about, what we've talked about uh, be believing but not gullible Uh, we've talked about the majority is often wrong and here's the third point Uh, love all but do not align with just anyone yes christians love people we love our enemies we love those who hate our faith we love those who are against us because we are not enemies with people there are spiritual enemies that we have to deal with but it does not mean now we align with just anyone And this is why I'm talking about boundaries, boundaries around who you should be not hanging with. So who are those people? And I know, I know some of you are going to immediately say unbelievers, unbelievers, no, false believers, false believers. And and false believers are defined by people who do not submit to the word of the Lord. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the prescription for people who sin against us. If someone sins against you, you show him his fault, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if they don't, you take two or three with you, and you confront them, and you say, listen, two or three people saying the same thing about you, you need to repent, and they still don't. Then you bring them to the church, your elders, your leaders, and they excommunicate, and then here's what it says in the last verse of that chapter, or the last verse of that passage. It says, if he doesn't listen to the church, he refuses to listen to the leaders in the church. Let him beat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words... Ostracize them. Do not hang out with someone who names themselves as a brother and yet constantly continues in sin without repentance, even when confronted. Um, 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says this, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, or reviler, drunkard, drunkard swindler, or, and, and don't even eat with such a one. Don't even eat with these people. Like Don't let these people be in your, your framework, your friend zone. You've got to draw boundaries around your life uh, another passage of scripture, and, and i could give you scores more the most often person that we warned against is the false brother or the wolf in sheep's clothing we are never warned against the pagan we are never warned against other christians we are absolutely warned against false christians second thessalonians 3 6 now we command you brothers in the name of our lord jesus christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us Igliness. Like, <laughs> look at the list here. The person who doesn't do stuff. The person who's just sitting around playing Xbox all day. That, that's something you want to avoid. Um, Someone else you want to avoid is somebody who has all the time in the world to argue theology with you. <laughs> you know these people? They're all over the place. They want to argue, 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 argue. They're just looking for arguments. And Paul says the arguments do nothing but harm. Uh, years ago, I would say oh, maybe 10, 10, 11 years ago, there was, a, there was a kid who came to our church. He got saved. He got baptized. I think he got baptized in another church, started coming to our church. He had a great influence on a small little close-knit community of young, young adults in our church. And all he wanted to do was sit around in a small group with these people and talk about what I preached was wrong. Like, hello, <laughs> what? And, and he wanted to amass people around himself. And so he wanted an audience with me. He would constantly call me and ask me, can I meet with you? Can I meet with you? And so I finally said, you know what? I am going to meet with you. And I shared with him this text and I said, you are idle and you are just sitting around and you are just walking in your own way and you won't submit to authority and you need to leave our church. Literally, I had to say that to him and uh, he wanted to argue back with me about that. And I, I remember this, I got up from the table and I just walked, I just left because you do not have to give audience to everyone, love all, but do not align with anyone, just anyone. You've got to have boundaries or you will be driven crazy. By false believers, by idle believers, by uh, useless arguments and silly, stupid factious kind of ideologies in the subset of the Christian community, right? You've got to maintain biblical boundaries. Cannot state this enough. Jesus did this. There was a time when Jesus was preaching, he said something, and it offended the original the religious establishment, the insiders, the, the church-going people. And the disciples are shocked that he's offending the church people. And so it says this in Matthew 15, 12, the disciples came and said to Jesus, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And, and you would think Jesus, like, oh, I, I offended somebody. Oh, I didn't mean to offend anybody. No, I love, what, I love what Jesus says. He says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. In other words, Christians, you've got to have boundaries. You've got to make sure that you are not hanging around Ahab's And definitely not Ben (laughs) Haydads. You've got to watch out with your relationship structure. This is one of the most valuable spiritual economic systems in your life. Your relational economy. Your, Your relational. Who are you investing in? Who are you praying with? Who are you listening to? Who are you speaking with? And it may not be the people that life teaches you to be closest to it you know fellow students family members neighbors people in your own house sometimes those relationship structures you need to draw clear boundaries and say i might have to live with you but i am not going to align with you Uh, you might have to draw a clear boundary around family who though they want a relationship with you. They have no love for Christ in the church and they hardly even go. And they're just lazy about that stuff. And you're just like, I, I got to be about my father's business. I got to be about the Lord's business. That's my calling. That's my heart. That's my life. This is a reality that you're going to have to live with if you're going to follow Christ and it will help you and it will strengthen you. And you will see this. And I have seen it over my, over the course of my life. Whenever God has removed relationship structures or I have drawn boundaries around these relationships that have not allowed them to develop because I know that they are of a different mindset than me, the beauty of the Lord is that he will bring people into your relationship circle that are of the like mind with you and sold out for the Lord. And those people, oh man, gold, not gold, titanium, like really platinum, platinum level people because they are heart and soul with the kingdom. And you're going to have to learn how to do that. That's being a big boy and a big girl in Jesus' name. That's the talk. Don't be a dingbat. Support the channel. (laughs) That's a great interlude there. Support the channel if you would, guys. That'd be great. Thanks so much. Uh, You can also subscribe to the channel. That's another way of supporting the channel. Tomorrow at noon, guess what? We're back. 10 Questions with Tim with your questions. Like, share, and subscribe. And we will be back with the deep end on Tuesday night as well. It has been an absolute pleasure to be with you guys. God bless you. May God protect you from dingbat spirituality. In Jesus' name. Take care.